Yeah, no, you yeah. almost, by the time you're done with philosophy, you learn to just ignore the content of what the philosophers are saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've learned that for every philosopher, it is, you know, someone that says the exact opposite thing, and they're both wrong, and they're both probably bad people. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and you just... is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen to hear the presence of God breathing through the thoughts of Ordinary Voices. Guests on the show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation, then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. Dear God, it's not you. It's me. My guest today is Jesse Sheedy, a 35-year-old lawyer living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In college, Jesse worked for me as a counselor at Camp Shalom, you know, the Christian camp with the Jewish name. From the first moment we met, Jesse was very clear. He was going to become a priest. But something changed when he left for seminary. It was visible every time we reconnected. There was less joy and more skepticism in our conversations, less confidence and more doubt. I thought he was becoming disillusioned with the church. What I did not see coming was the end result of a spiritual conflict. Jesse not only left the pursuit of ordination, he left ministry, the church, and God. Today, he identifies himself as an atheist. I wanted to talk to Jesse to hear his story, if for no other reason than to understand how do you go from one extreme to the other. For some, today's show will test your ability to listen like a good camp counselor. Try not to hear his words as an attack on your sense of God, but to understand his struggle. Listening does not mean you have to believe as Jesse does, or even with his rationale. It means avoiding snap judgments. My hope is, by listening, you might discover something about yourself and your neighbor. Our relationship began at camp around a campfire, so I interviewed Jesse in the gazebo next to the fire pit in my backyard. The sounds of the neighborhood and woods are quite clear, included a staff faith witness, which always seemed to begin with the words, I was born into a Christian home. in a Christian home. I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you laid it out there. Yeah. Um, my family was very religious. Uh, my mother was very serious about her Catholicism. My dad was raised in a Catholic family as well. Um, my dad was on parish council and building committee and all those things in the church. My mother uh, was unsatisfied with our religious education program, and so she got her own textbooks and got permission from the parish council and the pastor to start her own uh, family-based catechesis alongside the program that was going on at the church and recruited six other families to join in and ran our religious education classes for these families like in a parallel track at the church along the way. Uh, Even before that, I mean, if I really want to start, we, my mom started reading like a children's Bible to me when I was not quite yet able to read. And I, I remember, like, that was our bedtime stories every night. I remember the pictures from our first Bible. Right. Uh, by the, I learned how to read, and, and she handed the book to me, and I started taking over. By the time we finished the Bible, I was, uh, I was doing all the reading for a couple months. Oh, really? Yeah. We, played, we prayed uh, the rosary instead of listening to the radio in the car. I mean, <laughs> we, we were, uh, and we, we certainly never missed a Sunday. <laughs> Did you sing the rosary? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, well, she had a CD. 
uh, that sang the rosary. And so sometimes we would just listen to that. <laughs> I had always kind of thought, like, maybe I should be a priest, uh, even when I was pretty young. But when I was younger, I was, uh, even in high school, but especially before then, I was socially awkward. Uh, I was shy. I wasn't good uh, speaking in front of people. Um, so were these characteristics that you said, oh, I should be a priest because of those characteristics? Or Well, no, no, those were oh. were holding me back. Oh, oh, those are holding you back. Okay. Yeah, no, those were my butt. Like, okay. every time I thought I should be a priest, I thought, well, no, I can't I can't talk to people like that. The priests do. I can't right. be in front. Right. Like, that's, that's not me. And then I... Uh, I literally, I took a class my sophomore year of high school in debate, and suddenly I was arguing in front of people and finding I was pretty good at it right. and uh, enjoying it. And I got involved, starting with debate club, I got involved in everything else in the high school, and I was still awkward, but, you know, it got less. Right. Uh, and uh, I literally had that moment, like, in that first semester of debate as a sophomore, thinking, like, well, I, I don't have an excuse anymore. I guess I should be a priest. <laughs> So when you were and I started telling everyone that when I was in tenth grade, <laughs> really, yeah. And 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 what what at that time made you think that I should be a priest? I mean, I I don't I wanted to phrase it this way then, right? <laughs> but looking back, I think. I mean, I I believed in the truth of of the the church and and it. And I, I didn't want to do anything less important. Uh, I wanted to do the most important thing I could do with my life. What could I do with my life that would be better? And I, I didn't even really consider anything else very long. I'm biased against people who decide at a young age to become pastors or priests. Personally, I feel people really need to wrestle with God and have their faith tested before making this life-changing decision. This, however, is viewing the world through my own experience. It creates a standard for gauging authenticity on whether an experience is like mine or not. A lot of people decide their chosen profession at an early age and remain happy with that decision for the rest of their life. To think Jesse just decided too early is discounting the authenticity of his journey and struggle. I say this to caution from making snap judgments. Jesse will talk about what he calls college seminary. This is for people who plan on going into seminary immediately after college. The simplest way to describe it is they live like priests while doing their undergraduate work. They live in special housing with specific spiritual routines. Yeah, so I had planned to go to college seminary at Ambrose, and okay. I was in talks with Father uh, Chuck, who was the vocation director at the time, and I had applied and been accepted and was ready to go for that, and I didn't really want to do anything else, uh, but I got a, uh, I did. I also applied at a few other places, and I applied for a scholarship at U and I, uh, and I got a full ride there at U and I, and Ambrose was going to cost me. A private school tuition for four years. Uh, so my plan going to Northern Iowa was to uh, go for two years, take advantage of my full ride, and then transfer to Ambrose as a junior uh, and start college seminary then. And I kind of talked it over, I mean, just sort of as a money-saving thing with my folks. Did you like you and I as a school? I loved it, absolutely. No, I had, uh, those are some of the happiest times of my life probably. Hmm. I mean, the summers at camp were mm -hmm. enormously happy. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the time at school was also e extremely happy. I was, uh, I was very active in the St. Stephen Student Center. So, um, I wasn't a, a college seminarian, but I was the guy that spent all this time at the Catholic Student Center that everybody knew wanted to be a priest. Right. So, <laughs> next best thing. <laughs> person does not just decide to go to seminary. There is a process of evaluation. This evaluation is both spiritual and psychological. The standards for this evaluation intensified in the wake of clergy sexual abuse scandals. This is true in both the Protestant and Catholic churches. And yes, despite a desperate need for clergy, candidates are still rejected. Vocation is a church word. 
It is most commonly used in the Catholic Church to describe someone being called to a consecrated religious or priestly life. Jesse introduces us to the beginning of his struggle with faith. It all began with a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, actually, a lack thereof. certainly eager for vacations but they do some screening too right uh which is you know absolutely necessary <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so they they want to get to know who is potentially going to be their priests especially i mean i think like the the boston like the first wave of the sex scandals had broken like the previous summer there was right. perhaps a little extra scrutiny at the time right um so because well, we had you know when i went in you had to do Oh, there's 10 different psychological tests and oh, yeah. counseling, no. and you, did you have to do all that kind of stuff? You know, too? I, I'd forgotten about it until you said something, but there yeah. definitely was a battery of psychological tests and an yeah. interview with a counselor, and there was an interview with uh, sort of a panel of priests that they wanted to get to know about what your spirituality was and what you were kind of coming from, what your practice had been. Yeah. Um, Is there ever at any time that you're going through this process that you have doubts about this? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, uh, doubts are a part of, I mean, really anything you believe right. <laughs> at some level. Uh, that you're always going to wonder if you got it right. Um, I, I was pretty secure in my vocation for uh, until I got to seminary. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought I, I was pretty sure of what I wanted to do. I mean, I'd spent already five, six years, like, making that my life plan. Um, but, so, so there was a moment, uh, I, I was the, interviewed by this panel of three priests, and they, they said, do you have any questions for, for us? And I said, well, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I love the church. I, I love God. I, I feel like I experienced God the Father really powerfully, you know, just... In nature in the night sky and creation I feel like I experienced God the Holy Spirit moving through people that works for me great I don't know where I experienced God the Son you know it's there people talk about this personal relationship and I and I don't know that I know what that means uh, and they said oh no you'll be fine you'll have a Christology course uh, <laughs> they, they, they will straighten you right out <laughs> uh, yeah and, and you know my Christology course was maybe one of my favorite courses in seminary but it didn't straighten me out. (laughs) His second struggle was political. Jesse enters seminary at a time when the Catholic Church is becoming more conservative. What that means, I will let Jesse describe. Most people experience a spiritual dilemma when they first become aware of the politics within organized religion. Politics, though, are part of every human community, religious or not. However, Jesse's struggle with faith should not be reduced to a disillusion with the institutional church. It didn't help, but his struggle is still deeper than that. They are still, at least when I was there, uh, it felt always like the wheel in the Catholic Church was turning in a much more conservative direction. Uh, but I didn't have the words for that at first. I mean, I I just, I thought we were all one big happy family. I didn't know about the politics in the church when I got there. And it was a rude awakening at right. times. What was, the, what was the politics of that church that you, you woke up to there? I mean, I, I, could, I could cast a number of blanket terms on it, but it was never just one thing. It no. was, uh, they had just replaced their rector with a... Uh, a bishop, and having a bishop as the rector of your seminary was an unusual thing, and kind of reflected the the pressure cooker that seminary was in the wake of the Boston abuse scandals that then generalized to the rest of the country. What is the rector? Sorry, the rector is the uh, uh, he's the head of the seminary, I guess. He'd okay, with, uh, the president and another yeah something like that. Sure. So they replaced the rector and they put a bishop in there. Yeah. And the bishop is more coming more out of a organizational political side than it is necessarily a educational side. Is that the? So he he certainly had educational credentials. He was right. he was a very smart guy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but 
he his his ideal of the church, and and he he had the mustache to go with it was uh, from the fifties. Okay. <laughs> he he preached weekly about uh, a Catholicism, and he didn't use the word like ghetto, but it was very much the neighborhood uh, provincial. Uh, Catholic Church as separated, walled off from the outside world, um, and I, I'm 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 generalizing, but that's what I heard week right. after week after week. Right. Uh, and and I had always been much more inspired and much more attracted to a uh, evangelical uh, service, uh, social justice oriented model of what church is. Right. There's certainly all of that within the Catholic Church, but what I was getting pounded with week after week was. Uh, separate um kind of the beacon on the hill rather than the light out to the world right and right. uh the not just that but i mean it, I, theological and liturgical correctness was more important than than service and justice and mercy right uh and it's Is all it, a matter of emphasis it's not that they didn't believe in those things but i found that that was the environment i was surrounded with constantly at this seminary right Or the struggling point was, was it? Would you call it the divinity of Jesus or the personal relationship with Jesus? It was a Jesus. <laughs> Definitely, struggle. there was a Jesus in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I, I think so. It was more the personal relationship than the divinity of Jesus. I think. Okay. I mean, I like theologically, I can I can swallow a lot of things. <laughs> Jesus was divine. Sure. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that I. disagreed or struggled with the notions of it mm -hmm. um, but it, it was that uh, what it what does the personal relationship mean and what's that uh, gonna be like because so I, I I was two years in seminary as a seminarian and then I went and uh, worked at a parish for a year because I was struggling in seminary and I thought well okay you know seminary is hard but I can get through it if I know I'm gonna like the parish you know if mm -hmm. I'm gonna get out to a parish and everything's gonna be that much better uh, let's go spend a year in the parish and make sure that's okay for me right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and the parish experience wasn't good either. And I had a priest who was very focused on the personal relationship with Jesus talk. And um, it, uh, you know, we, we had maybe other personality conflicts that are more obvious in retrospect right. <laughs> than they were at the time. Uh, but I remember at the end of the year, I, was, I had still been struggling with the personal relationship with Jesus. And he's, he's just kind of uh, went off on how, well, that's the first thing a priest needs, and that's the, the only thing a priest needs, uh, is that personal relationship, and, and that's what everything he does comes out of. And I go, well, okay, well, then I, then I need that. <laughs> let's, let's figure that out. And so my new vocation director sent me to uh, this Institute for Priestly Formation, which is a summer program at uh, Omaha, uh, Loyola, uh, run by Jesuits, uh, and it, it builds itself as teaching seminarians how to pray. And, and they hit that same theme over and over again, you know. A, a, a priest has a single competence. You know, there's lots of things you do, but you have a single competence, and that is to bring people to Jesus. That's all that's really important about what a priest does. Uh, and, and they hit on that relationship with Jesus, and we had an eight-day silent retreat, and, uh, and, then, and then guys started talking about breakthroughs, you know. Like, you know, I, I just, they, they went off in extravagant, praise of, of their love for Christ that was newfound this summer and it uh, and I started like the more and more I heard it the more I wanted that the more I stro strove to pray harder to to do whatever to and I I never felt that same breakthrough and I got real depressed about it hmm. uh, and at the end of that summer I, I, I mean, I, at this point, I'm, I'm praying the Liturgy of the Hours. I, I had been doing that in seminary, but I'd, like, committed to it, finally. Sure. You know, I, w I was doing it not just, not just morning and evening, but I was doing it five times a day. I was doing the optional hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was spending, you know, a couple hours a week in adoration in the chapel, like, just right there in front of the Eucharist, just, like, praying hard, getting it all out. I was... Uh, I was, I was kind of rededicating myself to scripture and, and all of the devotions and, and daily meditation and silence and, and all these things like that, you know, 
the, the methods of connecting with Christ, I suppose. Right. right. Uh, and 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 the the further I got into it, and the more I I just got sadder and sadder because <laughs> I, I I I mean I was having. I, I could still I I could feel, yeah, what in my mind was God the Father and this and the Spirit, but this Christ figure remained completely elusive to me, right. and uh, I I I got to the point where I'd, I'd spend my time in front of the Eucharist just bawling, just crying for an hour a week, <laughs> just sitting there and and not getting it. Did what, what did it mean to other people that I mean how? I. Does you know, you, you can never really know that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but the way they talk about it is is just uh, the the way you talk about loving any other person, I suppose. Right. <laughs> someone that uh, you can interact with and, and, and have a back and forth with. It's someone that, uh, like it was a, you know, they, they talk about the real presence uh, in their in their lives and, and just, just... I became convinced in the course of that summer that I had been saying the same words as people around me, but understanding them differently, I guess. Right. But I never found what I thought I was looking for, I guess. Five hundred years ago, Martin Luther was a confused priest. Essentially, he was trying to meet Jesus. While obsessing and tormenting himself to find answers, he ended up finding the free grace of God, which led him to a more profound faith. Jesse tortured himself to meet Jesus and couldn't find him. Instead of grace, he discovers emptiness, an emptiness which led him to abandon a living faith. Jesse's experience is not uncommon and presents a challenge for the modern church. When people look for Jesus, many say they only find emptiness. This section made me think about these questions. Where do you meet Jesus? And what does the encounter look like? And what difference does it make to living? I am biased against this notion of a personal relationship with Jesus. To me, my neighbor always stands in between me and Jesus. I cannot meet Jesus without my neighbor being involved. Therefore, my relationship with Jesus is always a community experience. After his experience at the Institute for Priestly Formation, Jesse decides to leave seminary, at least to take a break from it. He gets a job working with at-risk youth in Des Moines, Iowa. However, finishing seminary bothered him, so he decided to return and finish his Master's of Divinity degree. Then Jesse takes a job teaching faith formation and Christian education. We pick up the conversation there. My, my, the priest I had there was uh, a bit of a micromanager, okay. um, and he liked things very particular ways sometimes, and we didn't always get along. Okay. Uh, but I was far more qualified for my job than almost anyone else that could have that position. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so I, I did fairly well regardless. Um, I, I mean, I had the same degree as the priest and another one besides, so... Um, having me run the religious education was, it went, it went fairly smoothly, like from a mechanical standpoint. Right, right. After about the first year, you know, my, my job became fairly routine. I had scripts for everything and, and, you know, we mix things up certainly sometimes, but you know, I, I always knew what I was saying on the same events year after year. Right. And, uh, I got... Didn't come to wrote. A little bit, even yeah. even in one year. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I was maybe too qualified for my job. Right. Uh, and uh, I didn't have a great deal of friends in Cedar Rapids. My social life, like, just maybe finally picked up in the fourth year there. Right. Uh, I started playing World of Warcraft and got hopelessly addicted to it. Uh, and, I don't know, I, I, I was overweight and lazy and unhappy. <laughs> I started turning my life around before I left the church. Mm -hmm. um, physically. I, physically, yeah. No, I, uh, no, b months before I had any idea that I would, would eventually stop believing in God, I, uh, I quit World of Warcraft. Uh, Lent was actually helpful for that. Okay. Uh, I, I started uh, exercising and working out, like little by little I lost 
80 pounds in the course of a year at one point. Right. Um, I started, uh, decided to, to care a little bit more about myself and, and, and do better things for myself. And, uh, yeah, I think quitting World of Warcraft made a big difference. <laughs> so you really got kind of seriously addicted to it. I was, yeah, it was pretty bad. Really? No, I was, uh. Yeah, all day, every day, I was hardly thinking of anything but World of Warcraft. I'd get home from work and I'd log in and wouldn't stop until I went to bed. And it was uh, pretty much my whole life for a while. I think that was a depression thing. Were you depressed or just unchallenged? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have great connections. I didn't love my job. I didn't hate it. I, right. I didn't, uh, I didn't have anything else really going on, so it was a nice default to slide into, I suppose. Right, right. It's hard listening to Jesse describe his condition during this point in his life and not hear elements of depression shaping the experience. Depression takes a variety of forms, and not all the time are we aware of it, even in retrospect. However, I want to caution listeners from associating his decision to leave the faith solely with depression. He could have been depressed because he was unchallenged, but he could have been depressed because he didn't believe what he was teaching. Only Jesse can answer that question. But again, I caution you from reducing his journey down to one factor. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. One Sunday a couple years ago, when worship was over, my wife turned to me and said, that's it? That's supposed to help me get through my week? I think about this statement every time I produce a podcast or write a blog. Ordinary Voices is a resource for people searching for spiritual meaning in daily life. I want to help you bridge the spiritual gap between Sundays or provide something meaningful if it's missing altogether. In the podcast, we're invited into the lives of ordinary people like Jesse with the thought we might find some of our own struggles in these stories. Then in reflection upon them, discover hope. If you like what you hear, recommend it to a friend. They may be searching for this kind of meaning as well. Go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org, OrdinaryVoices.org to find other shows or to sign up for the daily devotions. This podcast is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thanks again for listening. Now let's return to Dear God, It's Not You, It's Me. So I, I led this uh, Wednesday morning faith sharing group for these active retired women in our church. There's one guy besides me, mostly women. Uh, and they'd come every Wednesday morning. We'd look at the coming Sunday scripture readings, and uh, they'd bring food, uh, delicious food. And uh, we'd read the readings slowly together. I'd give a little bit of historical critical background on it. And then I'd sit back and say, well, what does this mean in your life? Okay. And, and we'd, uh, we'd have fantastic conversations. And it was probably one of my favorite parts of the week, every week. Yeah. Um, and so one Wednesday, we are reading the story of the Peaceable Kingdom from Isaiah, which uh, I know you know, but yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, the lion will lie down with the lamb, the child will stick its hand in the, the viper's lair, everything right. will be hunky-dory. Uh, so we're reading this, and we're like, well, this is, uh, this doesn't sound like anything on earth. You know, we have problems here. <laughs> this, is, this is a description of heaven, clearly. <laughs> So, what does it mean for us in our lives to, for heaven to be like this? What, what's this description of heaven? And, you know, I always try to keep, keep it practical. Uh, mm -hmm. let's, let's not get too abstract. Let's talk about our lives. Um, and that was a tricky one when you're just talking about what heaven's like. But, you know, we, we tried. Um, and it, it occurs to me about 15 minutes into this conversation, we're talking back and forth and listening, that, man, this heaven place sounds terrible. Uh, Sure, everything's happy all the time, but there's no conflict. There's no challenge. There's no... When do you practice the virtues? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. you, there, there's no opportunities to be good. <laughs> there, there's no opportunities to do anything right, because no matter what you do, it's not wrong. You can do any stupid thing you want, and there's no consequences. Like, 
not gonna lie, I, I just gotten out of World of Warcraft addiction. I knew that if I'm in a place with no consequences, I'm going to devolve into the worst person I could possibly be <laughs> in a very short order. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, well, not only does it sound bad, and uh, it sounds boring. Like, why would I want to be in a place where nothing could go wrong? What, that's, that's stupid. <laughs> uh, and it hit me kind of hard uh, that this, this heaven sounded awful. <laughs> Uh, which which flew in the face of everything I'd ever believed. Right. Uh, and so I kind of explored that idea a little bit in that discussion that day. And then I realized, you know, this is kind of dangerous. Let's pull it back and say something happy to end up. Yeah. And so I did. But it, it stuck with me. And um, I had always believed very strongly and, and very firmly that doubts were part of faith. Uh, and, you know, St. Augustine had said, uh, anytime something in your faith doesn't make sense, that's just a flag God planted saying, dig deeper. Uh, and you'll find a greater truth about God. And so I was like, okay, uh, you know what? This this heaven thing's bothering me. I need to stick with it. I need to, to sit here, make it part of my prayer life and journal life, make it part of my research, just dig in. And I didn't get anywhere with it for a couple weeks. So uh, I'm sitting at church one morning. When you dig into something like that, what does that, what does that mean? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I spent some more time with the passage. I had, I had looked up a little bit more exegesis about it. Right. I, uh, I mean, for me, it was a lot of journaling. I, I did more back then. Uh, right. And uh, I didn't, I don't think I had a conversation with anyone before I got to the next point. But, I mean, obviously, conversations were part of it later on. Okay. Um, but, uh, so I'm sitting in church, and I'm, I'm realizing, you know what, I, uh... <laughs> I still don't really know that I, I like this idea of heaven a couple weeks later. Um, you know, I, I, I felt like I had, you know, faith originally was something I learned in the context of my family. I felt like I had made it my own in college, you know, mostly uh, in the context of arguing with some of the, not the atheists on campus, but the fundamentalists. Yeah. You know, I, I had come and kind of defined myself and my faith life on my own terms at that point. But it had been years since I'd done that. And so I was like, well... Uh, philosophy major, uh, maybe it's time to re-examine my fundamental presuppositions. Maybe it's time to give a, a real serious thought to why I believe what I believe again. And it's it's been years since I've I've done that. You can't re-examine your fundamental presuppositions every day. That's a right. terrible way to live. Right. Right. <laughs> but but I did, and I opened that door for the first time in years. And after my experience in seminary where I was miserable, and in the parish where I worked with people who. Uh, only changed if they wanted to and never because of any grace I could see. <laughs> and uh, in, in my in understanding of uh, science had grown and my understanding of a lot of things had grown, um, when, I, when I asked myself the questions again about why I believed in God, uh, I, I found I couldn't find a compelling answer anymore. Because of uh, Wednesday morning face sharing. <laughs> <laughs> they no longer have that class. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they do. No. The peaceable kingdom found in Isaiah 11 envisions a time where the benevolence of God overflows. The poor will have justice and violence will be no more. A couple of thoughts emerge as I listen to Jesse. First, I don't quite follow the rationale of the argument. Think about the flip side of his view here. And you know, every argument has a counter-argument, right? So poverty, hunger, war, and abuse need to exist so you can practice the virtues of doing good? And the absence of these things are boring? An entirely legitimate question to ask is, would Jesse's initial view of this story be different if you were a refugee fleeing from his home in a war-torn Syria? because that's exactly the kind of community Isaiah is writing to. When we examine biblical meaning, we need to wrestle with its original context. However, that being said, this still does not address Jesse's situation. He did not come to this conclusion in his life because of biblical interpretation. Something deeper was at work. Like Jesse and I viewing the peaceable kingdom, how can two people look at the same thing and see something completely different? How can there be any common ground in the midst of differing views? The question Jesse asks of himself might be an interesting journey for anyone listening. Why do you believe what you believe? Now let us follow along as Jesse explains the process of unbelieving. Again, listen to the process. 
he will reference Rahner, which is Karl Rahner, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, both inside and outside the Catholic Church. Jesse can talk freely about it now, but as you listen, his words communicate a very painful struggle. So I actually uh, didn't leave the parish for another six months after that. Okay. I, uh, and even after the first time I said it out loud, the process wasn't complete for another four months or so. Then. Right. Uh, and I, it was, I guess it's not, it's not ever complete, is it? But um, it had reached some, some resolution, to say. Right. Uh, but so, I mean, the saying it out loud for the first time, I was... I had been really stepping up my journaling game. Okay. Uh, I had spent a lot of time. I uh, I filled probably five yellow legal pads over the course of those months, just every single day, writing down my thoughts and feelings like in, in exquisite detail. <laughs> uh, I had I had read for the first time uh, Rahner's Foundations of the Christian Faith. Rahner was one of my favorite theologians in seminary, and. He, uh, it was what was remarkable was I was able to read this theologian that I thought, um, and still think, you know, this was possibly the most beautiful, powerful exposition of the Christian faith that resonates with me and the way I always believed Christianity was. Uh, and it's about as well expressed as I possibly think it could be. And I was still rejecting it hmm. uh, and, and finding flaws and, and, and I, and I could see it was beautiful and still reject it. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time in this process, but I, I still wasn't able to say it out loud until Christmas that year. Because of the way Christmas fell and my family's religiosity, we ended up going to church together like three days in a row. There was like a, I don't know, it was a Sunday Mass and a Christmas Mass and a Christmas Eve Mass and it all backed up together. But I was not sure what I believed or if I thought there was even a God and I was very angsty this Christmas. <laughs> uh, and, and finally, after like the third Mass a day in a row, I was with my family. Uh, I, I was going to receive communion, but it felt wrong to do it. Um, and I, I get in the car to drive. We were going from one family gathering to another and I, for whatever reason, was driving separately on my own. So I called up a friend and I kind of like vented and and said what I was feeling and going through, and he's like, well, why is this Why is this so upsetting to you? And I finally said out loud, I don't think there's a God. Uh, and I, I had a full-fledged panic attack. You know, every muscle in my body clenched up. I was crying, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't, I had to pull the car over, I was lucky enough able to do that. Right. Uh, but it, you know, it took a good 10 minutes to go away. I, I just, uh, I, I, the world just collapsed. Uh, as it happened, I was on my way from Dubuque to Davenport, and Camp Shalom was just a few more minutes down the road. So I went there, uh, and I pulled into the, like the cabin area, and just kind of it was December; it was cold as anything. Right, <laughs> but I, right. I just like you know stared at the uh, at the sky in a place where I'd always felt most connected to God, and, and realized that I, I didn't. I don't know. That wasn't going to be enough, <laughs> right. uh, and and went on with my day, but a little calm down. Uh, but, uh, yeah, after the panic attack, I, I, I kicked it up another notch. I was like, well, you know, whether I believe or not, I need to resolve this because I can't go through that again. Right. Uh, and, and a few months later I decided I was done for sure, <laughs> believing in God. And I, I faked it with the church until my contract was up for the year. They renewed it every summer and I thought, well... I need to figure out what I'm doing next. Bad for them to lose someone in the middle of the year. Bad for me to not get paid. I can, I can fake it for a little while. It'll be inauthentic, but it won't be that bad. I can, right. uh, and so I, I went through with it until January. I had staked my entire uh, personal and professional identity mm -hmm. on, uh, on not just theism, but the Catholic Church in particular. Mm -hmm. And in rejecting kind of the whole package, I had to, there was a, there was a process that's maybe still going on of like, well, did I ever really believe this or was it just because God said so? Uh, and I, and it's not, my, my morality did not change overnight. Uh, there was certainly a few things I 
you know, the cognitive dissonance about the Catholic Church's teachings on homosexuals in particular was really easy to discard. <laughs> uh, but, but, but other things, you know, there was a longer process. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Where are you at morality-wise now? How would you compare any of the two? Any different? I mean, again, a couple of things were really easy to discard. Um, but generally not... I mean... When I was Catholic, I towed the party line on abortion. I, it took me a little bit of time to kind of process that, but I can't stand with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, homosexuality was, again, an instant thing. Mm-hmm. I think I, I'm relatively more skeptical in all matters of sexual morality than in the, the church's teachings. Um, but other than that, I, I my passion for justice and, and mercy and... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a social liberal, I suppose, and, and that was true before and is now. Right, right. And there's still in you, just in the, some of the conversations I had, there's still um, uh, respect for the office. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird because, like, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Because when I, when I first left the Catholic Church and, and theism, believing in God in general... It, there was there was the I really wish I could still believe, but I can't. Right. And then there was the, well, you know, I don't wish I still believe that much. <laughs> to, yeah. you know, I wish everyone was like me. Right. Uh, to, man, I, I I might have gone, just further around that edge now. For, to now I wonder like, you know, I I, I think, Christianity does more harm than good, uh, and I don't know that I've gone full out rabid atheist. I don't know if I ever will. Right. But uh, I, I have kind of moved along that process over time. And what I was thinking about the other day was that back when I was uh, a believer, if, if I found out something was taught by a religious authority, I, it's not that I would automatically buy it, but I would give it uh, the benefit of the doubt. Right. It, it had my biases in its favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's the reverse. If I find out something's taught by a religious authority, it's not that I would automatically discard it, but my biases are more against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back then, I had to work hard to counteract the bias one way. Uh, now I have to work hard to counteract the bias the other way because right. I, you know, I want to be reasonable. Right. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, if, if I find out something is said by a prominent atheist, I might be like, yeah, well, no, no, actually, that's still dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but but my right. bias is going to be to listen to it, and and you right. got to watch out for your bias no matter where you are. <laughs> As a pastor, I find it hard to listen to someone describe my life as doing more harm than good. Yet I don't hear this as a personal attack. What I hear is someone expressing the effects of a painful journey and a discovery that he was not the only one who felt this way. Despite how you receive these words, he is describing a process which has not ended, a process of evaluation, examination, and future disclosure to a new truth. If God exists, If the Holy Spirit truthfully calls, gathers, and enlightens all people on earth, and if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then we should respond in such a way that expresses the truth of those statements. Jesse's family models that kind of response. How does this go over with your family? Uh, so I have a pretty good family. Uh, yeah. They, they, uh, you know, we're not perfect, but I, I had a pretty happy childhood. They've always supported me. Right. Uh, they, uh, I was a little reluctant. I mean, I talked with my brothers before, I, or my, my brother yeah. and my sister before I talked with my parents. Yeah. Uh, but no one, I, I mean, I was more worried about losing friends. I had a lot of friendships that were based on shared faith from the beginning. We met right. at church, we did church things together, my right. camp people, you know, right. and so forth. Uh, my family accepted me. Uh, they they they're pretty loving, pretty open. My, I mean, my mom will never stop praying for me to come back to the church. Right. Uh, that's fine. Right. Yeah, it's, she she absolutely can. I I tried. I I went to them. I went to church with them uh, for a couple of years after I I left myself. Uh, and then one year I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And so when they go to church when I'm visiting, I stay home holidays and everything. I don't think I could say anything that would make them stop loving me and accepting me. So. 
that's, that's pretty that's cool. Really good. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't. I don't. I didn't lose any friendships either. I, there was no one that. Uh, oh well, we can't hang out anymore. <laughs> right. Not, not not. I was expecting more of that, and that never happened. Uh, I mean, there was one bachelor party I went to where we ended up talking about me leaving the church the whole time at a bachelor party, <laughs> and that was just weird. <laughs> There was three really great things about stopping believing in God that happened. It took effect immediately, and they made my life so much better. Uh, number one, I was able to let go of a lot of guilt I'd been carrying around uh, from various things that I thought were, were so bad and so evil. And now I look back like, yeah, you know, I was never that bad. I screw up. I do bad things even. But like, I don't need to carry around that kind of guilt. And, and I felt like maybe it was just back baked into my Catholic faith particularly. Right, right, right. Uh, number two, though, I, um, anytime I had ever found strength or hope or comfort in prayer or God's presence, or anything else like that. Um, it just turns out that that was inside me all along. It was a Wizard of Oz moment uh, where, you know, it turns out that I have, I didn't get through this with God's help. It was just, I'm tougher than I thought. <laughs> or or better speaking, I, I have community support. I have good friends. I have everything that's pulled me through. Uh, I don't, I mean, I could thank God for having a good life, but it'd be much simpler to thank my parents. <laughs> you know, they, mm -hmm. they did a great job. And, and number three, which is kind of leading back to what we were talking about, um, I had spent a lot of time as a believer trying to figure out what I should be doing, what God's plan was. Firmly believed there was a plan for me, and I needed to follow it. And I, I'd spent a lot of time uh, putting a lot of pressure on myself to like, well, you know, I'm, I work for the church. Um, there's a, a chance that someone could be turned away from Christ forever by my actions. And that's so much pressure. Here it was a Wednesday morning Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> no, but as it turns out, like, there is no plan. <laughs> and and that's enormously freeing and beautiful. You know, if I screw it up, you know, I, I messed up my life. That's the worst that comes of it. I don't have to worry about my part in any greater plan for anything else. Uh, uh, even, even if my life turns to crap, there's no pressure there. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and... And I don't have to figure it out, and I can make it up as I go along. And that was just the best feeling. Where do you find meaning and joy? I mean, I don't know. The question about meaning, it's a good question. Don't get me wrong. But it's not as relevant for me right now. I mean, I, I don't know that I feel strongly that my life has to have any meaning right now. I don't know that there has to be a goal. I don't know that there has to be uh, anything bigger than just what it is. <laughs> and if what it is is, well, yesterday I had a couple good beers and played board games with some friends, then that's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and and if it's uh, and if I if I do anything more than that, that's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I I guess I mean I'm not an absolute nihilist or anything. Right. But, I, but I have some nihilistic tendencies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know. Uh, but, I mean, so meanings are kind of maybe separate from joy. <laughs> it, right. it, you said meaning and joy, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so meaning doesn't bother me. <laughs> okay. Uh, joy is, I don't know, it's about connections. It's about the communities that you find yourself in. It's about, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly care about social and political issues. Being able to uh, voice something like that makes a difference. Being able to help someone in a more one-on-one -on -one when, when I'm doing pro bono work or something like that feels good, too. Mm -hmm. um, but I also just play a lot of board games. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, I like to travel. There's things that make me happy. As I reflected upon our conversation, my thoughts turned to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesse views his life as being raised on the ultimate truth of faith, a truth impervious to any counter-argument. 
as his analytical mind developed, he was confronted with the foolishness of it all, and he chose wisdom, something every person is free to do. The Christian faith really is foolish. We believe God, the master of the universe, became totally human. He preached love, patience, understanding, and invited believers to follow and find profound joy, and we killed him for it. Now, we profess hope and new life in a God we killed. It's a silly, ridiculous, and foolish notion. Killing people, though, emotionally, spiritually, or even physically, because they do not believe in our foolishness is vulgar, and in contrast to the message we proclaim. To me, sometimes it feels like modern Christianity is more about restoring political and social power than caring for the spiritual needs of people. Churches chase after what is attractive rather than transformative. We teach a cultural tradition rather than living a faith in the foolishness of God. Christianity proclaims foolishness to a world in love with its own wisdom. Cell phones, televisions, computers, the internet, cars, highways, bridges, and factories, and the rapid advances in medical technology. We cannot escape the beauty of our own wisdom. Yet every advance in human wisdom presents a new form of destruction which threatens human life. Human wisdom carries its own level of foolishness. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, those who choose to live in the foolishness of faith see the power of God and discover hope. Jesse still finds the time he lived in the foolishness of God at Camp Shalom is immensely happy, maybe the happiest time of his life. Then again, camp was about community, not self-understanding. The only behaviors we stopped were destructive ones. We looked for ways to love each other in the midst of conflict. At camp, you learned community was not possible without reconciliation. Reconciliation was not possible without confession and forgiveness. We pushed people, campers and staff, to see each other as precious children of God. I know camp is a foolish place to most, but it taught me the wisdom and power of God, and it's a lesson I carry with me every day. It is a lesson I hope everyone learns so they might discover the power and hope of faith. That's our show. I want to thank you for listening and thank Jesse for sharing. May his process lead him to find joy in life. A note to followers, production of Ordinary Voices has been difficult. Life in the congregation just hasn't slowed down. I thought Jesus took a break in the summertime. I'll not be producing reflections for the next couple of weeks because of uh, being on the road. However, I will resume work on July 23rd. Join me for my next podcast, Voices from New York, Reflections on a Mission Trip. Until then, remember there's more joy in serving than being served, more life and love than hate, and patience is key to understanding. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking on the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation.